0: You don't have to say it out loud, but how would you describe sin? Not, not define sin, but describe it. Sin is disobeying or not keeping God's law in every way. That's, that's the definition. But how would you describe it? What Adjectives. Would you use? Uh, yesterday, I had my three sons do some yard work outside. Uh, most of our family is sick, but I had them work outside anyway in the yard. And uh, <laughs> when they when they came back inside, I had all the boys. I mean, they were they're out there in the woods. I had them go get their get showers in the bathroom upstairs. Yet while they were showering upstairs, I heard the oddest sound downstairs. It was the sound of air bubbles coming out of all the toilets. Not only that, while they were in the shower one at a time, they told me that the bathtub was beginning to fill up with water even though the drain was unplugged. I immediately knew what was happening (laughs) You see, we are on septic. Anyone else? And my concern was that the septic filter got clogged. And if that's the case, you know what happens? If not dealt with immediately, (laughs) everything that is meant to go into the septic tank comes back up into the home. So immediately, I sprung into action. I got on my boots, I put on gloves, and I went to check the septic filter. And sure enough, it was clogged. In fact, when I opened the septic lid, the smell almost literally knocked me out. So you know what I had to do next? I had to clean the filter. I had to reach down, get the thing out, and I had to get the clothes and clean all of the Stuff. So holding my breath, I spent the next ten minutes cleaning the filter, rinsing it of all its filth. And while I was cleaning it, you know what I kept thinking? The thought that kept filling my mind was, I cannot think of anything more disgusting than this. (laughs) I I literally, I almost vomited. Have you ever had the joy of having to do that chore? Anyone who's had a... yeah. Okay. Well. This morning we resume our study of 2 Samuel. And here's the question I want us to consider. And that is, why do we often give way to sin? That is, why do we often run towards sin rather than flee from it. Indeed, why is it at times that sin does not repel us like it ought? Because I don't know about you, sometimes sin looks pretty good to me. How about you? Do you ever feel that way? And I wonder, could part of the reason be why we run to sin rather than fleeing from it? Could part of the reason be because we don't view sin correctly? Think about the question we started with this morning. That question of, How would you describe sin? What adjectives would you use? You see, faith, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to live for Jesus rather than ourselves in each and every moment of the day. And on the street level, on the most practical level, that means we must turn from sin, flee from sin, and instead run towards Christ and to pursue holiness. But the question becomes, how can we do that? You know what the answer is? On one level, it's this, and that is, the way that we flee sin is by viewing it properly. Because according to Scripture, you know what is far more disgusting and revolting than a dirty, clogged-up septic filter? Sin. And faith, this is precisely why I think we need our passage this morning. As I mentioned, today we're going to resume our study of 2 Samuel 21. And as you're about to see, this chapter begins, it begins a new section in the book of Second Samuel. Indeed, many think these final chapters, 21, 22, 23, and 24, are simply, uh, some people just don't know what to do with them, and they think it's just a random set of events taken from David's life. However, I want to argue that these chapters are not an appendix or an intrusion, but rather they are the wrap-up for all of 1st and 2nd Samuel, the intended wrap-up. For in them, I believe, the author wants to show us how we are to regard God's kingdom as ordered under David. Consider just with me for a moment how these final chapters have been carefully ordered and arranged with a deliberate structure. I'm going to throw it up here on the screen. This is just a 30,000-foot view to kind of see where we're going to go the next several weeks. But here's how the book of 2 Samuel ends. I want you to notice the cemetery. It begins with a famine caused by Saul. This is the passage we're going to look at. And then it ends with a plague caused by David. Then moving inward, you have David's mighty warriors, and you have David's mighty warriors again. And then right in that center section, we have David's final song and then David's final words. So do you see the cemetery? Indeed. Do you see where the author places the emphasis of this final section? It's right there in that middle section, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. However, for our purposes this morning, it needs to be pointed out that our passage begins with a lack of food, the lack of water, with a famine. The text says, during the reign of David. And as we're about to see by this very general reference, the author wants to inform us that 2 Samuel 21 does not chronologically follow the events of 2 Samuel 20. So when does it take place? Well, the author does give us one hint. We're going to see this in verse 7. And then based on verse 7, we know that the events of the passage we're going to look at this morning take place after David brought Mephibosheth. Jonathan's son to Jerusalem. So the famine we're about to read, we know takes place sometime after 2 Samuel 9. So with all that said, if you haven't already, please turn with me to 2 Samuel 21. That's page 273 in that paperback Bible. And let's see together what this passage can teach us about a couple of things. Uh, Number one, how we can Understand and view our sin correctly, but then also, too, how we can understand and view our Savior properly as well. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read 2 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Let me read this. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. If you're the underlying type, that's an important phrase, and his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, referring to the Gibeonites, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So let's pause right now. There's a famine in the land and why is there a famine in the land? What does verse 1 make clear? It's because of what? Saul, a sin that Saul and his household had committed. Because notice the text says, there is blood guilt on Saul and what? And on his house. And what is it that they did? They killed the Gibeonites. Now, who are the Gibeonites? You'll recall that back in Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonites, they actually, they tricked Israel. They tricked the people of Israel into giving them protection so the Israelites swore never to kill them. Indeed, the Israelites, they made a covenant with the Gibeonites. They made a covenant that we will never do harm to you. However, many years later, in what appears to be a fit of nationalistic zeal, Saul massacred some of the Gibeonites in an event that is not recorded in Scripture. Now, why is this a big deal? Especially since the Gibeonites... They deceived Israel in the first place. Well, it's a big deal because in killing the Gibeonites, Saul had violated the holy name of the Lord, the name in which Israel made their covenant oath with the Gibeonites. You see, Saul just didn't simply sin against them. No, he broke a covenant Israel made with the Gibeonites in the name of the Lord. So therefore, the Lord is punishing his own people for this crime, and he's punishing them with a famine. So notice, David has a problem on his hands, doesn't he? And it's due to Saul's covenant-breaking sin. Because of Saul's covenant-breaking sin, Israel is suffering a famine. There is blood guilt on Saul, and the text also says, and his house. So notice what David does next. Look at verses 3 and following. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, meaning there's there's no money that can deal with this, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. He said, what do you say that I shall do for you? Verse 5, they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So Now notice the question that David begins with asking. He says, how shall I make what? It's actually on the screen right behind me. Atonement. Now, that's important, and we're going to circle back to that in a, more minute, in a moment. It's a unique use of language. But notice, I want you to notice the Gibeonites' response. Their statement indicates that Saul and his house's offense is so great it requires more than monetary compensation. They actually think it requires the shedding of blood, but they don't have the right to execute anyone. So that's why David asks again, and David agrees to their request for seven male descendants of Saul to be executed. Now, why would David agree to do this? Well, consider what God mm-hmm. says in Numbers 35 33. He says this He says, No atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Remember, what's happening right now in the land? There's a what? Famine. No atonement can be made, nothing can be made right, except for the shedding of blood by the ones who shed it. You see, and this is again where Joshua 9 is important. In Joshua 9, Israel, the text says, cut a covenant with the Gibeonites. This is a graphic reference to the way covenants were made. The way covenants were made was this. An animal was cut up and the pieces lined up in pairings of two halves. The covenant makers then walked in between the pieces to signify this, that if they broke the covenant, the same fate would befall them as befell the animal. Well, now because Saul and his household broke that covenant, that fate would fall on the house of Saul. So because Saul broke Israel's covenant with the Gibeonites, the covenant curses will fall on Saul's house. Yet notice what we learn about David in the following verse. The author here, he's wanting to present a strong contrast. See if you can pick it up. Notice what we read about David in verse 7. So he agrees to give them seven of Saul's men because Saul broke the covenant, verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan. Why? Because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So notice what the text is communicating. It's this. While Saul is a covenant breaker, David is a covenant what? Keeper, isn't he? For why does he spare Mephibosheth? He spares Mephibosheth because of his covenant with Jonathan. Right? Saul, covenant breaker. David, covenant keeper. So he's going to spare Mephibosheth. However, two of Saul's sons and five of his grandsons will not be spared. Look at now this graphic section in verses 8 and following. The king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni, and Mephibosheth. This is a different Mephibosheth. And the fine sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholalite, And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, if this bothers you, it should. Why? Because at first glance, it appears that all of these men are the innocent victims of their father's crimes, right? I mean, because as the narrative makes clear, these seven men are being executed as atonement for Saul's sin of breaking Israel's covenant by slaughtering, most arguably, thousands and thousands of Gibeonites. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, this event of where Saul and others came and slaughtered the Gibeonites, that event is not recorded in Scripture. So that means there's much we don't know. For example, we don't know when this event took place, nor are we told the details of this event, Furthermore, we're not told who accompanied Saul in the destruction of the Gibeonites, though it is most certainly the case that someone did accompany him. But you know what we are told? We are told in Scripture very clearly that children should not die for the sins of their father. This is the clear command of God himself in Deuteronomy 24, 16. Children should not die for the sins of their father. Furthermore, as the end of this narrative makes clear, God approves what David had done as is evident by the famine being lifted. So what are we to make of all this? This is what I think we should make. Based on God's clear command in Deuteronomy 24, that children should not die for the sins of their father, and God's approval of the execution at the end of this chapter, and very importantly, God's statement in the first verse of this chapter that there's blood guilt on Saul and his house, I believe the data that we are given best supports the notion that David selected men who were complicit in the slaughter of the Gibeonites. This is to say these were not just random fellows, but these sons and grandsons were involved in whatever horrific event took place when Saul and his nationalistic zeal slaughtered thousands of the Gibeonites. And notice how these men were sacrificed before the Lord, how, the, the language that the text uses. The execution of the members of Saul's house, notice it turned away the Lord's wrath. This is, this is atonement language. I also want you to notice at the end of this section how the men are put to death, notice verse 9, verse nine the first day of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Now why would the author mention that? He'd do it for this reason. The beginning of the harvest is actually the moment of scarcest food resources. We see the same situation in Ruth when they arrive in Bethlehem. Since the last harvest, they have eaten up everything that was available. So as harvest begins, reserves are in desperate need to be replenished. This is to say all this is happening in the most desperate moment in the land. Now, you think that'd be the end of the story? But there's much more. Look at what we read next in verse 10. Then Ritzpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. So notice, the famine has been lifted. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. According to Deuteronomy 21, the bodies of those who are hanged should be buried that same day. Yet for whatever reason, the Gibeonites refused to do that. So Ritzvah, this is the mother of two of those men, by the Gibeonites, she sheltered their bodies from the birds and the wild animals until the rain started falling. Well David gets wind of this, he hears that she's doing this. so notice what he does next. He gives these men now a proper burial. Look at verse 11. When the day or the beasts or the field, yeah, I'm sorry, my failing eyes, verse 11. When David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square at Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul at Geboah. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin of Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea of the land. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Uh, Thomas Kelly was born July thirteenth, seventeen 1769, in Ireland. The son of a judge, Kelly attended Trinity College and planned to be a lawyer. However, while completing his studies in London, he was convicted of his sin and became a Christian through the writings of a pastor named William Romaine. Well, shortly after his conversion, Kelly abandoned the study of law for the preaching of the gospel. He faithfully served as a pastor for more than five decades. And while preaching at the advanced age of 85, he had a stroke while preaching, and he died the following year. It's recorded that his last words while alive were, not my will, but thine be done. Today, Kelly is most known for the 760 hymns he composed. We sing one of them somewhat regularly here at Faith. And you know what hymn that is? Does anyone want to guess? Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Here is the third verse of that song. And could I invite you, could we say it together? Ready? Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Do you see the point that the hymn writer is trying to get across in this verse? Notice carefully what he writes. Kell is saying that if you want to see just how awful, if you want to see just how disgusting sin is, he says, look at the cross. That is, if you want to view sin correctly, Kelly's exhorting us to consider the doctrine of the atonement. In faith, we see the same truth communicated, I believe, in the passage we just read. As you no doubt noticed, as we were working our way through 2 Samuel 21, this is a horrific passage. I remember my Hebrew professor was fond of saying, the Bible is not G-rated. And that's certainly true here. This is a horrific passage. And what makes it horrific? It's the grueling death of Saul's seven sons. Consider how their execution is described. The author uses sacrificial language, does he not? For starters, notice that they are killed and exposed before the Lord in verses 8 and 9. David describes their death as an act of atonement in verse 3. Not only that, verse 14 implies that God received this sacrifice for he responded by answering prayer on behalf of the previously famine-stricken land. You know what this passage is doing? I think, and I want to encourage us to see, I believe it's showing us the horrific nature of atonement. And you know why? I think it's to help us as the hymn writer expressed to view sin rightly. You see, Faith, I believe this passage is intended to press this important truth upon our hearts and that is simply this. Atonement is horrific because sin is horrific. Atonement for sin is horrific because sin itself is horrific and disgusting. It's awful. The description of these seven men being killed and hung out before the Lord, the grotesqueness of this is to see that atonement is horrific because underneath that, sin itself is. Pastor and author Tim Chester has insightfully written this, referring to this passage. He says, Atonement is not an intellectual theory or a clever piece of accounting or a paper transaction. It's bloody, brutal, and ugly. But mark this, atonement is ugly because sin is ugly. Sin presents itself to us with a beautiful mask so that we are tempted. But behind the mask is a rotting corpse. Sin is death. Death is sin in its true colors. And death is what is required for sin to be atoned for. We we can put it this way. You you know what sin is? It's a clogged-up septic filter. It's disgusting and vile. And friend, you know what? Just like I would never hug that septic filter or spread its contents all over my body so too, when we see sin clearly for what it truly is, it ought to keep us far from it. In fact, let me ask you, Christian, what would happen if you viewed your lust or any other sexual sin like a septic filter? Or or what if you viewed sinful lust or sexual sin as a dead, rotting corpse as displayed in this passage? What if you viewed your bitterness this way? What if you viewed your sinful anger this way? What if you viewed your pride in this manner? What if you viewed your critical, greedy heart in this way. Faith, atonement is horrific because sin is horrific. Therefore, I believe this passage invites us, and I want to encourage you just by way of application, invites us to take three important actions in light of this truth, to help us rid us of the desire to snuggle up to a rotting corpse or to carry in our purse or backpack a clogged septic filter, I want to encourage us to take three actions all based on this text, okay? And they're all, they're all applications. And the first is this. In light of the fact that sin is horrific, I'd first encourage you to invite God's correction. Look again at verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. As as some of you know, I, I roomed with my brother Dave in college, and one morning I hit the snooze button one too many times, so I had to rush to get to class. Yet when I arrived in class, I literally felt in my body that something was off. And then while I was in class and walking to and from class, people were kind of just looking at me somewhat strange. So I said I had a little bit of a break. I said to go back up to my room. When I went back to my room, my brother Dave was doing some work, and I asked him, I said, Dave, look at me. I said, something isn't right. I feel it, but I can't see it. Tell me me what's wrong. When Dave turned around to look at me, he laughed. You know what my problem was? I mean, I had lots of problems then, but you know what my problem was? I missed the first button in my button-down shirt so all the holes didn't line up, right? Have you ever done that and are willing to admit it? Okay. Because it was the top button, when I looked down, I couldn't see it. You see, I knew something was wrong. I felt something was off. I didn't know what to do. I had to ask somebody, what's wrong? Well, notice, that is what David is doing. He's inquiring of the Lord because due to the famine, like a shirt that's not properly buttoned, he knows something's off. He knows something's wrong. You see, what David is doing is he's inviting God to show him where he or the nation have sinned. And faith, I want to encourage us to do the same. Why? For several reasons, and they all have to do with God. Notice what we learn about God in this passage, particularly in this verse. First, consider how God's justice is unforgetting and unrelenting. You know, we say time heals all wounds. Not so with God. Please hear me. The passage of time And Israel's dimming memory of what Saul had done did nothing to erase the blood guilt in the mind of God. You know, people may forget past sins, but God never forgets because he will perfectly vindicate his law and those who have been wronged. Please hear me. From God's perspective, nothing merely just blows over. We could say this, there's no statute of limitations with the justice of God. And aren't we thankful for that? Therefore, faith, it will serve us well in light of this to confess our sins to God. For you know what happens when we confess our sins to God? He forgives us and he remembers our sins no more. But notice also how God is so kind to reveal to David what is the problem. And I want to argue this is not some privilege only David was granted. David's like, there's a famine in the land. And by the way, whenever there's a famine in the land in the Bible, we know it's because Israel needs to repent of something, right? There's a famine in the land, and and David's like, okay, search us, O God. And God was faithful to answer him. That's not some privilege granted only to David. No, when we come to the Lord, like the psalmist does in Psalm 139, and ask God to search our hearts, to see if there be any wayward way in us, God is faithful to answer that prayer. And because sin is horrific, and disgusting, and vile, and destructive, I want to encourage us to have this be a normal prayer in our lives. God, there might be some wayward way in me that I'm unaware of. Would you show me so I could confess it and turn from it? second, I think it's appropriate to draw from this text that one of the actions we should take is we should evaluate our motives. Look at verse 2, and I'm I'm getting this from Saul's failure. Verse 2, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his what? Zeal for the people of Israel in Judah. Oops. Notice the text says that Saul had zeal for who? Say it like you mean it. People of Israel, Israel and Judah, the people of God, right? Now, is it wrong to have a zeal for God's people? No, but you know what Saul did? Saul elevated that above the Lord. In fact, although this incident is not recorded in Scripture, based on what we know from this passage, it's safe to infer, I think, that Saul thought he was doing something right. Indeed, he probably thought he was doing something just. And there's a warning here for us, isn't there, faith? Remember, Sin is not only wanting bad things. Sin is also wanting things badly. That is, sin is choosing to value and craving certain things above the Lord, even good things like a zeal for Israel and Judah. And I think it's appropriate for us just to pause as we reflect upon this passage and ask, man, seeing seeing the, the, the error of Saul... Is there anything maybe in my life I'm so zealous about, even a good thing, that maybe I'm valuing that more than God? Is there anything maybe that I'm wanting so much, a good thing, that I'm, I'm willing to sin to get it and sin if I can't get it? I think careful consideration of this passage ought to lead us to prayerfully evaluate our motives. But then finally, based on this text, I want to encourage you to rely on God's provision. And the provision offered here in this text and the same provision that's given to us is God's covenant-keeping king. Look at verse 7 and 14. where We read about David, but the king spared Mathibisheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, because David and Jonathan, the son of Saul, he kept his covenant. And then the, the last line there of verse 14, and notice how they rely on the king, and they did all that the king commanded. After that, God responded to the plea of the land. Arguably, one of the most important features of this really difficult passage, one of the most important features that the author intentionally highlights is how David is... A covenant keeping king, whereas Saul is not. Did you notice that? Indeed, you also see how everyone in this story relies on David to solve the famine problem and deal with Saul's covenant breaking curses? Faith in light of the serious nature of sin. I want to exhort us then to rely on the true covenant keeping king, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why. David's question at the beginning of this passage is our question. However, our question isn't asked to the Gibeonites, but our question needs to be asked to the God we've sinned against. How shall I make atonement? All of us come into this world as covenant-breaking sinners in our natural condition. We have sinned against our God and King and atonement needs to be made. David's question is our question to God. How shall I make atonement? And you know what the answer is? We can't. We are unable to. This is why we need the true son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know what the true son of David, God's covenant-keeping king, does for us? Whereas David just resolved the curses of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself the curses we are owed for our sin. What did Christ do? On the cross, Jesus was hung. On the cross, Jesus Christ died to atone for the sins, the evil, disgusting septic-smelling, rotting corpse sins that you and I all have joyfully engaged with. On the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the full wrath we are owed for our sins. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving himself to be the true Son of God and justifying all who would put their faith in him. Praise the Lord that God has made provision for our sin in Jesus Christ, amen? We have atonement of sins, of our sins, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Scripture makes clear is that Jesus saved us from the septic tank of sin so that we would, please hear me, no longer go back, but that instead we would pursue righteousness. Friend, can I ask, can I ask, Has there been a moment when you've seen your sin rightly? Not only its disgustingness, but also the penalty it carries, the curses, if you will. And have you thrown yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ going all in saying, I believe that Christ and Christ alone, his perfect life, his death on the cross, in His re- resurrection from the dead, that that work of Christ is sufficient to save me. And have you gone all in, putting your hope in that? If not, friend, I'd encourage you. Let today be the day of salvation for you. And for those of us who have, may we, by the Spirit's help and by the mutual encouragement of one another, may we view sin rightly and live righteously the glory of our God. Amen? Let's pray.